Welcome to First Coat, where we explore public realm art, how it's made, and why it matters. I'm your host, Stephanie Etche, an artist and entrepreneur based in Brooklyn, New York. I run Distill Creative, where I curate and produce site-specific art projects for real estate developers. I focus on creating more equitable and inclusive projects, and I want to get more exposure for the artists and developers doing this work. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the First Coat podcast. I am so happy you are here. I have a very special bonus episode for you this week to finish off season one. As you may know, I started working on this podcast in March of 2020 when I was stuck at home and, well, I'm still social distancing and staying at home, but I have released 12 episodes of the First Coat podcast, and this will be number 13. If you haven't listened to episodes one through 12, please go check them out. I interviewed some amazing mural artists and we discuss everything from how to use parachute cloth to how to make a creative brief for a client. I'll be releasing season two of the First Coat podcast in about a month. For the next season, I'll be doing some shorter episodes that explore the nuts and bolts of public art, as well as some book reviews and how I started this podcast. I want to know what you want to know about art and public space. So please email me your questions at stephanie at distillcreative.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E at D-I-S-T-I-L-L creative.com. Also, if you would like to support this podcast, find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash firstcoat. For as little as $1 a month, you can help keep this podcast going. Okay, now for our final episode of season one. This week on First Coat, we have Jordana Vasquez. Jordana and I met at a placemaking conference a few years ago, and we've stayed in touch ever since. Jordana studied architecture and has worked in design, art, community development, and sustainability. She recently co-founded Women of Color Collective in Sustainability, WOCSIS, which facilitates strategic exchanges between Black, Indigenous, people of color, sustainability pioneers, climate justice organizers, and advocacy groups to fight inequity and address climate change. On this episode, we talk about how she and her co-founder started WOCSIS, her experience leading a grassroots public art project, her project Urban On Site, and what it's like to be the only woman of color in the room, which I also could relate to having the same experiences. We brainstorm business development for both Distill Creative and Woxis and how we're creating our own directories. Jordana also shares how to use a personal project to connect with changemakers and artists around the world, thoughts on the role of public art, how to collaborate with sustainability organizations, and tips for career development. Please note, this interview was recorded in July of 2020. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for being on First Coat. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So what I do, that's a heavy loaded question because I've been able to wear a lot of different hats throughout my professional journey. So like maybe instead of like saying the title right away and saying um, my professional current position, I can tell you a little bit about like the words that describe me and I will take it from there. I am a, a curious person. I always try to find connections between people and places and spaces. And you know this, like we connected over placemaking. So I try to always find a way of connecting my background in architecture with the work that I currently do in sustainability and just asking questions. I think that's what's been like one constant in my professional journey. The second thing I would mention, I am a social connector. I am not an extroverted person by any means. I'm sociable, but I do enjoy building relationships and building genuine relationships. And I'll talk a little bit about how that got into play with Wilkes. Third thing that I can think of would be change maker slash social impact agent. And I would say like this one can be, get a little bit technical. Like I am trained as an architect. I went to architecture school at Pratt Institute. I graduated a couple of years ago. Not to give away any, any age, but it was 2014. <laughs> <laughs> and since then worked in a different capacities, worked um, in architecture firms, interior design, design build. Found my way navigating the construction architecture side of things and social impact with economic development and work with Hurricane Sandy. I think at the time you and I met, I was probably working at one of these organizations. Mm-hmm. So from that work, I eventually uh, had an opportunity to go more into sustainability, energy efficiency specifically, uh, using the skills from an architecture and construction, and but also like the technical part of it and implement it to new construction. So high performance buildings. Um, working with programs like LEAD and NYSERD and Enterprise Green Communities, actually having um, 
had seed, a seat with the designers and the architects that were working on these projects and making sure that their buildings were like the most high efficient and sustainable building that they can build. That's in a nutshell, a little bit of everything that I would say would be on my resume. There's like a bunch of other things that are not there, but hopefully like a little splash of creativity in all of those, that would be a constant. Can you tell us about your Heart of the Maker project? So that was a, a project for my venture, uh, Urban On Site. So Handsome the Maker was a, well, a little bit of context. This was part of Stoops. So Stoops in Brooklyn, it's a yearly gathering of artists. The initiative is led by an artist by the name Kendra Ross. She is a phenomenal artist. I believe she's a dancer amongst like many other things in the visual arts world. And she had this idea that she wanted to bring public art to Bed-Stuy. And she wanted to have the artist be from Bed-Stuy or have lived in Bed-Stuy, had a connection to the community. And it was a, an array of, you know, dancers. Uh, there's a little bit of like performance, uh, spoken words and visual arts. So I was living in Bed-Stuy at the time, or just recently, maybe I can't remember exactly a year. I submitted a pitch for doing a mural with mosaics called The Hands of the Maker. It was part of my, my work with Urban Insight, which is a platform for work with content and photography for sustainable business. So that was, a, and Urban Insight is like my creative outlet, like my excuse to meet artists and my excuse to learn about them. For this particular project, I wanted to map out Brooklyn and so I was running around the whole city, finding maps where I could find them, like the subway, old magazines, like you name it. Found recycled materials from different companies who were selling tiles. So you imagine me in the city, like next to Home Depot with a bunch of tile pieces that Priscilla knows that Home Depot didn't want. But I put them all together, I mapped it out. The exercise that I wanted my part of the community to, to do was come in, see us at a puzzle, and try to put the puzzle together of the map of Brooklyn. And the interesting part of that was to see like what kind of conversations were gonna take place. Were people just gonna be fixated in the idea of making the map? Or were they gonna be talking about like, oh, I lived in this neighborhood or my family's from here? which was eventually what happened. Like people were talking about like, yeah, like I grew up in East Flatbush and this is, I know for sure that this part goes here. So <laughs> it was fun. I mean, I had a great time. I've not done anything like that ever since, but the program, the initiative still happens. Like every year, if you look, of Stoops, Brooklyn, there are going to be a lot of interesting public art happening. That's awesome. I remember you talking about that project. It's like a casual but also complicated approach, right, yeah. to public art, because anytime you engage with the public, it becomes more complicated. But if you didn't do that, then it wouldn't really be as, I think, maybe impactful. I think it was interesting to see like what, how the public was was going to react is I think we all had an idea of like this is probably what's going to happen but if you just let the art be or like the, the pieces be and see how people you know start either configuring the pieces or interpreting their understanding of what they were looking at it was completely different from the idea that you had at the beginning so I noticed that with the dances or the spoken words and people's reactions were really really diverse I would say where are you living now did you did you move since then or so this is 2017 I moved across Brooklyn. So I lived in Demis Park. And from Demis, I moved to Park Slope. And from Park Slope, I moved to Hoboken. So I'm in New Jersey now. I'm oh, in Hoboken. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's why I don't see you that often. I'm just kidding. I know. <laughs> I, it's, been, it's been interesting because I was the first person who said, like, I'll never move back to New Jersey. And like, here I am, like trying to convince friends to come up for lunch or dinner. It's a beautiful place. I love it. So I, it's hard for me to go back to Brooklyn and come back at night, the whole story, but I would do it. How has your relationship changed with pre-COVID commuting into the city and then now that you don't have to? It's weird. I mean, just like in Brooklyn, I had everything that I needed within a mile. Like I had the stores and entertainment and the park. For, for COVID, you know, we, we've been in a bubble ever since March. Like I had to leave the house because I had to um, take care of family members that were, are, you know, hospitalized. So I had to go back to the city all the time. But my partner who was working in the city, he had to stay here for four months. For me, like I did everything from getting to, so from being the only single person inside the bus at 7 a.m. to go to the city and like try not to breathe and move to taking cabs to like walking and taking the subway. It was, you know, it's scary. The whole commute and the whole like navigating the city. Like the city, if you go, I don't know how it is now because I haven't been in for the last few weeks. At the beginning of April, it was like ghost town. Like mm -hmm. everyone in Wall Street, because I was there, nobody was there. 
you only saw like the black and brown folks working, but like there was <laughs> for all the Wall Street people, they're in there. Yeah, I just happened to be at Bryant Park today, actually, and it was really weird because it there were still people, but it wasn't it wasn't how it normally is, you know. Right. Um, but it's just super bizarre. That was the second time I've been in Manhattan since March, and it makes me sad. But it's also I don't know. It's just it's depressing thinking about all the lives that have been lost and the things that could have been avoided. But on the other hand, like forcing people to utilize public spaces for their daily needs is kind of interesting. Like you can't go inside anywhere, right? So you have to like have a meeting in the park or whatever. I saw that happen with the uh, the initiatives from the the parklets in Midtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, how like had that begin an idea of, you know, let's experiment with this open space here and see what happens. And now they're using that template or that model across the whole city for restaurants. I'm like mm-hmm. that, that's such an interesting thing. So you never thought that that was going to be like the normal that we're living now. Totally. I think though, it's like, and I'm curious about your perspective on this, but it's like everything that I love about public space has now is now like my worst nightmare because it's, <laughs> it's in a pandemic, right? So it's like, great, all the restaurants can be out on the street or in these really cute parklets, but should we really be serving people right now? And then, you know, this like encouraging gathering, even though we shouldn't be, it's just very confusing. I think, you know, it's it's fortunate and unfortunate that like the situation that we're here now, because I've been in places where I had the option to dine in and I immediately, you know, I think it twice. Like I think about how close am I going to be to the table next to me or like, how's the air going to transfer between us? And I felt through experience a little bit more at ease with the, the restaurants that had an open space, either in the back or at the front. So I'm a little bit grateful that we're getting creative with like, how are we, you know, socially distancing in like recreational activities and things like that. I find it very interesting how folks are doing in parks and how I keep seeing photos of like, either doing circles like in the ground to like state that this is the physical distance that we need from each other or like how nature itself has served kind of a barrier between spaces and people are just getting you know excited and creative about doing this so I think we just have to we have to give people options ideally we would all be you know I would think better protected and more conscious of each other but from what I've seen like that our 25 year old neighbors don't want to be held home like it is pretty sad that I feel like as a 30 year old something I'm here protected and everything and I wanted the right thing but I also understand that telling them not to go out telling them not to do this doesn't get me anywhere so the best thing I can do is hope for a designer uh, to come up with the spaces that restricts them from going you know too close to each other and and hope for the best that they respect those barriers. Can you tell us a little bit more about Urban Onsite? Yeah Urban Onsite came about I would say 2015 summer 2015 was right when I started LISC and it was like during the period where I was transitioning from architecture and wanted to do something more impactful. I quickly learned working at LIST that as architects, we had two different options. Like we can do business as usual, you know, high rise buildings, um, thinking about aesthetics and making it function and that's it. Or we had another option, which was like, how are we gonna be designing the cities that are gonna be sustainable, more self-reliant, more efficient? So I was learning so much about sustainability and what sustainability meant mm-hmm. from a resiliency perspective, especially thinking about floods and thinking about hurricanes, because that was like the scope of the work back then. And I just needed a place where I could not only brainstorm, but also learn and, and share that knowledge. But I'm also an architect, so I had to like make it creative and make it fun. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to create a platform that I will use not only as a creative outlet, but also to learn about projects and connect with people. And it has been, I would say, probably the most constant project in my life because there's always something I want to write and share or there's something a project photography that I want to do thanks to I would say to that platform I've been able to connect with people in New Orleans and what I would do is every time I travel let's say Cuba or Thailand or New Orleans a couple weeks before I go I would reach out to a local artist or a local change agent and say hey I read about your project your permaculture in Oahu and I'm going to be there for a couple of days. Can I come over? And people are super open 
to explain to you that they have this permaculture farming in their backyard and like you should come over for dinner and learn about it, which happened. Or they would tell you like, hey, if you're New Orleans, let me show you these murals that I did. It might as well take you bar hopping the whole day and <laughs> show you the city through my perspective. And that happened as well. So I would say like Urban Insight has been my Though, you know, like I mentioned, my creative outlet, but also a point of me to to go out there and seek those questions and seek those answers that I'm not able to get through my my job because I'm intentional about doing this on another space, another um, medium. That's what I think what I like so much about it is that it's not just one subject. It's like everything, but it also is related. You know, everything's related and you really do a good job of tying it back to your own personal experience and opening the door to what different people are doing in different places. And I love that philosophy of like reaching out to people, researching before you travel. It's one of the things I kind of hate about like Airbnb experiences because they commodify (laughs) that in a certain way, but I'm not against that as an activity, right? Like we should all be connecting with human beings when we go places as opposed to just like taking the photo and then moving on. And I think for, I'm thinking, well, let me see one particular example. People, not only do they want to share the story with you, like if you come up to someone and you say like, look, I do this kind of work. I'm like, I did, for example, in Miami um, during our uh, basal, basal, you know what I mean? Yeah. We were there for the week and looking at the art pieces and like moving through the city. And we connected with this, um, the guy who owned a, uh, an urban farm in the middle of Miami. Like this is, you know, full on almost permaculture regenerative farm in the middle of nowhere. And we said, you know, we want to come and check it out. And we're going to take the most beautiful photos of your farm and write a story about it. Would you be interested? And he's like, yes, like, I would love to see, you know, the photography that you come up with and stuff like that. And I'll let you know about, you know, the story behind this. And it was like the loveliest afternoon we came in. We learned so much of it. When I say we, my partner, because my partner always comes everywhere I go. Uh, we, we did the photo shoot and it was just such a great experience. And people are super receptive to that, in my experience. I'll definitely link to Urban Onsite in the show notes so everybody can see these awesome blog posts and your photography. How did that develop into, or how did you develop the idea for Waxis Women of Color Collective Sustainability? And did those inspire each other or were they just completely separate things? So as part of Waxis, uh, well, as part of Urban Insight, let's start there. I would also like go to different events throughout Climate Week or events throughout the year in New York City. We had the opportunity that there's events like every single day about every single topic that you can think of. So sustainability is a big hot topic um, back in, it it's, has been the last five years and continues to be. But in 2018, 2017, can you remember it? Sure. Climate Week was happening in the fall. Mm-hmm. And I went to an event for sustainability and fashion. And I was there and quickly realized that I was the only woman of color in the room. And it, w- it didn't take long for me to realize and almost to the point where like, oh, yeah, there's just no one that looks like me. Just one more event of sustainability and fashion. No biggie. I look at my left and I see this woman on the other side. And you know, like that face of like acknowledgement. I was like, oh, I see you. You see me. And we sort of like gravitated towards each other and across the room and, you know, struck in conversation and realized that she was working in sustainability in more like a tech and venture capital capacity, I believe, at that time. A little bit of policy. And I was working at that time in more of a green technical um, design and building. So we decided, you know, to share contact information and keep each other updated of similar events. So we did that for the following year. We would email each other and say, hey, there's this gathering happening or there's an interesting project taking place. You should look into it. You should apply. And a year into it, we decided, you know, we're having drinks at Pier 17. I remember this. It's July 2019. And we're like, you know, this is great that we're going to all these events and we're accessing all these like different resources, but we should open the door for other women to also join us and to, you know, point out that there's great talent over there, like out there, but maybe they don't know of each other. There's not enough community around like some of the things that we want to do. And leadership, you know, we looked up and we talked about lack of mentorship. We talked about a series of microaggressions. We talked about similar experiences in the environmental work and talked about a lack of women of color at the leadership uh, status too, on the board, executive suite, you name it. So we said, you know what? We're going to start a community. We're going to start a group, a collective, let it be. 
and let's have a meetup. Let's have a happy hour. I think you were there for that one. Let's have a happy hour and, and see what happens. You know, see if there's any interest in like probably going to be four women who are going to be interested in this kind of event. And like, lo and behold, we had the first meetup and we sold out. So we cannot even go back to that bar because like we reached maximum capacity. But that was an indicator that there was um, an appetite in New York City and even outside of New York City for a community where women of color with, you know, experiences and sustainability could collaborate, find resources, find jobs, mentorship, and just really find other like-minded individuals. So this was, you know, the, the beginning of it. And it has grown to be something much more bigger and like beautiful than we anticipated, I can say. How have you been funding it? Has this just been all labor of love so far? So I would say a mix of those. Um, we had our initial uh, capital put in, but we've been able to do a few events here and there. Like we typically don't charge much. I think a lot of us don't do it for the, well, a lot of us, just two of us. We don't do it for like, okay, we need to make a profit, at least in the beginning. We didn't want to make it, you know, that way. So a lot of our events have been or are still going to be free of charge. We eventually want to move into the point where we do get to pay the people that come and speak at our events. We want to be able to pay some of our volunteers, eventually hire an intern. So we've been applying to a lot of different grants. We've been, we've been lucky enough to receive funds for our latest event, which was the grant. So we're going to be granting 10 women with like $300 for, you know, whatever basic needs. So those have been, I would say, a couple of different things or different approaches to capital that we've had. Eventually, we want to move into more of a tech-enabled platform where it could be something that you can navigate on your phone or your computer to find all things wokes from a map showing all the green projects out there led by women of color to all the job opportunities presented to women of color, ways to engage. So that's eventually going to require funding. And I think love can get you to a certain point, but eventually you want to be able to either fundraise or, you know, we've been working really hard on grant admissions. So hopefully one of them will pan out. And next time you and I talk, it's going to be like, yeah, we won that one. That's interesting because that similarly, but in a different vein, but I do think they're related. Basically how I envision growing Distill Creative, having it be a more of a tech platform where like using overlays of Google Maps and different things. So I could have basically a directory of art in public spaces or in the public realm, but, and also have like budget and background of the artist and all of that. And then highlight black indigenous people of color. One question I have actually is, so I'm currently, I may or may not edit this out, but I'm currently <laughs> on um, your directory and other directories have inspired me to want to do a directory of artists. Yeah. Specifically artists who work in public spaces, which as you know, could potentially be any artist, but definitely mm-hmm. are specific artists who are already doing that type of work. But it is such a closed environment. Like it's hard to get in, I would say, um, particularly for like commissioned work by developers, which is what I'm specializing in right now. So I, I'm debating what it would be. Like, should it be BIPOC? Should it be women of color? Should it be women and BIPOC? Or do you have any thoughts on that as far as like what might be more needed? Because I don't, I don't want it to just, I want it to be helpful. And if it's not helpful, then it's not necessary. I recently came across through my partner of an initiative venture that they had a an idea for a startup that they would connect artists with public, well, sorry, artists with commercial buildings. Mm-hmm. So the artists would work mm-hmm. on the piece, commercial building property management would like have a way to access to them. So like a directory. I can link with you later for a little more info because my, me, myself, like I don't know all the details, but for your particular uh, project, I would think it'll be more interesting to have it for like BIPOC. So black, indigenous, yeah. people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, just because there's such a wealth of knowledge there and, 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 mm-hmm. you know, and you can go so many different ways. If you mm-hmm. wanted to really specialize in indigenous art, there's so much resources mm-hmm. out there. If you wanted to specialize in like Latinx or, mm-hmm. um, black, I think having the BIPOC allows you an umbrella that you can yeah. explore depending on, you know, like maybe one year you want to explore this or one theme could lead you to a certain kind of artists and another thing to lead you to a different kind of artist. Mm-hmm. So I would do, I would go that way. Mm-hmm. I think if anything, what we've seen in the last few months is a, an, an appetite for more art, for more thought leadership and more, you know, work 
being represented by people of color and black and indigenous mm -hmm. and that interest for visibility the interest for exposure it, it's not new it's always been there it's just that now like we're getting the recognition that we deserve and we're not only claiming it we're like demanding it so i say like go for it if this is something you want to do i i know so many artists that would be so happy to finally find a place where like their art can be recognized and easily accessible right and not just because of the color of their skin but because there is this new interest in it which is weird at least they're gonna get the commission or the fee or whatever and instead of I don't want there ever to be an excuse like well I couldn't find an artist that you know represents the community or um, it's too easy I think for people to excuse away things even though there are resources that exist Not only that, like you'll be I mean I see tell me if I'm wrong but like I see you also like advocating for them I feel like a lot of artists mm -hmm. and you know this like we I mean I'm saying we have done like a few pieces but we can sell ourselves short you know like we might not all know the rules and you know the pricing of things so we say, okay, this is what my worth is and this is the best I can get. If you were to be working under a directory or, or an umbrella, you'll have the willpower or the the power to advocate for them and say like, this is what you deserve mm -hmm. as an artist. You know, forget, you know, like color for a second here. This is you as a talented, brilliant artist, what you deserve. And not only you're here because your voice matters, representation matters, but your talent needs to be recognized and paid fairly. But I think that would be like a very crucial part of it, that the fact that you're getting paid what you deserve. That's another part of Distill Creative that I'm looking to develop is like just having, to your point of what we were talking, you were talking about with Waxis, like having more transparency around things because a lot of artists, whether they're doing a mural or a site-specific thing or community engagement, they might not know that there is real money for this stuff. It's yeah. just sometimes you have to ask for it. Sometimes you have to educate people on it, but it all starts with valuing your work, which is hard if you haven't had that opportunity yet or if people expect to get things for a low price or for free from you and you're just thankful for the opportunity, you know, right. like I, I hear portfolio <laughs> right yeah I've, I've heard from a lot of the interviews i've done from mural artists they're like don't don't ever do a mural for free but also my first mural i did for free you know it's like this yeah. weird like thing community is everything bouncing ideas from each other is everything so mm -hmm. go for it are you an artist submit your portfolio at distillcreative.com artist you'll get on our distill directory our artist database and be considered for upcoming art commissions I really liked your blog post that you did for Urban Onsite okay. called Congrats on Obtaining the Environmental Job of Your Dreams. There is just one issue. Nobody looks like you in the office. <laughs> we'll definitely link to this in the show notes, but can you explain a little bit about that? That post, funny enough, came a few days before the, you know, the second wave of civil rights movement that we found ourselves in. It happened at a moment where I was going through a lot of like self-reflection of like, is this the right place I want to be in? Is this the right working environment? You know, as part of COVID, we were all locked in for weeks. And not only there's a lot of work to be done, but there's a lot of like moments that you had to kind of analyze the situation of, all right, this is where um, I'm at. And like, is this what I want in life? And, you know, we all went through all those little self-reflecting uh, moments through all those weeks that they came in in April, I would say. I was struggling a lot with what it meant to be a woman of color in sustainability. I would say perhaps because of Wuxis, like I'm daily, I'm exposed to this kind of work daily. Like I'm exposed to stories of women that are facing not only microaggressions or are facing like maybe why I'm not being promoted if I've been here for four years. And so and so has been here for six months and I've been in so many other projects and recognized, but I, my boss doesn't see me. As part of Wuxis, we have a, a template that you have to fill out and say, why do you want to be part of this? And there's a section that asks you, like, what do you want to be part of Wuxis? Tell us. And there's so many different comments there of like, I just don't find like people see me and I want to find other people who look like me that can understand my experiences and my, you know, like what I go through at work. So there was a lot of moments, again, self-reflection through COVID, being home and just having the time to finally sit down with my thoughts. I said one day, I was like, you know, I was going to put like all my thoughts into one place and try to make a connection with what does it mean to me being a woman of color in sustainability. And, you know, the more that I wanted to find examples of leadership being represented by a woman of color, I just couldn't find them enough. I mean, there are a few. And thanks to Wuxus, I've been able to meet a few. But they're just not that many. So I was struggling with that. I was struggling with the fact that as soon as there, and this happened, as we all know, in, in June and May, 
as soon as there's some issue that relates to social injustice or Black Lives Matter, and you're the person of color in the room, everyone looks at you for like explanation. Like, please, we want to learn more about this. Like, what can we do? I'm like, wait, you should educate yourself. Like, why, why should all the responsibility fall on the person of color just because of the color of their skin? Not everyone wants to be, you know, a public advocate. <laughs> you know, some of us work more internally. We want to write things and express ourselves painting. We don't want to express ourselves in a town hall. So that combined to the fact that I felt that in the industry, there was a lack of initiative that linked climate justice and environmental justice to the work on the ground. That's what led me to write this. All those feelings were that I mentioned at the beginning were like factors, but at the end of the day, it just comes up to be, what does it mean to be a person of color in environmental work? What does it mean to be a person that works in environmental work, but doesn't understand color, but doesn't understand the links between social justice, the links between climate justice and the work that they're doing. I mentioned this to some of my coworkers. If you're gonna be working in urban planning and sustainability, but you don't know what redlining is, there's an issue. You know, so if you don't care about people, you cannot care about the planet. You need to try to connect it, everything together. First, look at your home, see if your job environment or the workplace is truly representative of diversity, which is, you know, like what I alluded at the, the title. And then say we're working about, you know, making the better environment, better planet, everything. But you have to look inside first. So that's where all sort of came from. I think that you put it so well right now and in the post that everything is connected. And when I think of sustainability, I do think about it as like a very like wealthy white person, upper class thing, right? Like you want to be in a sustainable community. You want to compost, you want like right. a green roof, you want to live in like a lead building and like have everything solar panels on your car. I don't know, just that kind of utopian view of the future. But it's not, it's not that black and brown people don't want these things. It's that when I think of the industry, I do think of it as a very white industry because I only see white people doing it. Like I, and, and that's, that's why I was so excited when you, when you started Wokesis, there need to be more, particularly when women of color, but just like people of color in, in the industry, because it is, it's for everyone. Like we can't survive as a, as a race without everyone, like as a human race. Right. What, what do you think is the role of the artist in all of this and how can public art or the use of public spaces be more connected with sustainability, both on a planning side and then also as, as a user of public space or as a producer of art? I can speak a little bit from experience here. I think, I, well, the way I see art, we turn to art where, especially in moments of like despair and moments where like we're feeling uncertain, we turn to art to get a reaction and to get our feelings expressed and also to re-experience basic emotions. And what I mean by that is like, sometimes we wanna watch a movie just for the sake of crying. Sometimes we wanna watch a movie just for the sake of laughing. Sometimes we want to go out and, and see art just for the sake of, having you know a reaction and sometimes art comes to you without you seeking for it you're walking by a place and you see a mural let's say that is socially conscious or has a message and you're looking at it and there's a reaction and that reaction as an artist that's what you're seeking at the beginning but after you get that initial reaction as an artist you're seeking what are the actions that this person or she or he are going to take i feel like as an um as a public art uh, artist and mural or any kind of art, getting that first initial conversation of like, this is, you know, I feel a certain way and recognizing what the feeling is and recognizing that you have the power of not only making people either uncomfortable, which it's okay. As artists, people should get comfortable with having people being uncomfortable. And hopefully that's gonna either strike a conversation amongst people who are observing it or interacting with it. And hopefully that's gonna let some action to be changed. I feel like, art is really good at not only making very complex subject digestible, um, it's very good at communicating just social issues. I remember, I think this was in, um, in Portugal, in Lisboa, we were walking amongst, you know, like some of the little streets that they had. It was a beautiful city, but there was this huge mural that had a piece about refugees. And it was a, one of those very ironic pieces, you know, like there was like the refugee was there and the, the, there was like someone kind of looking over them. And me and my partner looked at that piece for a few minutes and we had a conversation for an hour, like what was happening in Europe at that time. 
And I imagine the artists like looking down and say like, this is the kind of things that I want. I want people to have conversations about what I'm trying to express here and hopefully go back home and make a better choice about whatever it is that's bothering them. And I think, you know, in sustainability, it's no different. You want to have art that evokes those emotions and hopefully get people into not only making impact or being more conscious about their decisions, but actually being more respectful towards each other. Love art. Can, I can talk to, about this forever. So, <laughs> <laughs> What tips do you have for an artist who wants to collaborate specifically with sustainability organizations? I think as an artist, first, I would identify what part of sustainability they want to work with. So there's so many different routes that you can take. You can say, I'm really interested in agriculture, or I'm really interested in energy efficiency or sustainable fashion and find one or, or two or three that really call to them and find how you can use your superpowers. You know, if that be doing public art and talking about how to make this, I mentioned this before, some of the messages are just more digestible. Or let's say I've seen great films, you know, talking about sustainability. I've seen, I even seen uh, theater shows, like small skits about like how climate change affects, you know, folks in New York City and find like your medium. So not only first like find which of the sustainability tracks you're interested, find what medium you want to use and and give that a try. I've heard podcasts, for example, that are all about sustainability. I've heard songs about sustainability, which I thought they were really funny, but you get people talking, you know, at the end of the day, people are saying your name as an artist and that's what you want. I say, don't be shy to use the superpowers. I've seen artists being multi-talented in like different facets of different ways to express themselves and see what organizations out there are, you know, speak to their values or speak to their interests really need them. More than ever, I think we're in a place where we need to connect with each other because we're all most of us now all of them are socially distanced if you can really find a way of plugging art and sustainability that way hey you won the the jackpot can you tell us about the Voxis directory and how someone might apply to be on it the directory that we have we call it the database came about this idea of like how do we have all the women or the members of our um of Wuxus, you know, in one place where we can easily identify them. Not only know their names, but also know their experience, also know where they're working at or where they want to be working at. And have people that are either interested in finding women of color and sustainability that have those experiences in matchmaking or also use their interests to come up with different events. Like if I see that I have 50% of the women in the directory who are really good at farming, for example. That lets me know there, like there's an opportunity here to engage with more workforce farming. I've had people reach out to us often, employing a new person into my team. And I really want this person to be a woman. I'm all about mentorship and I'm all about like, you know, different values and things like that. And I'm really looking for a very specific profile. And I feel like someone from your members could fit into my company. And that could be either, it has been from sometimes from women of color themselves that they want to look into bring that profile in and that experience. And sometimes it hasn't. It was a little bit difficult to say, okay, um, you know, Joanna, let's say, I know a bunch of people that I can connect you with. Let's go one by one. So we say, what about we just bring everyone in house, one database that people who are seeking to engage a woman of color in sustainability for either a podcast, let's say, or for a speaking gig or short-term contract or full-time position can find them. And also for women who are looking for similar full-time or contract, they can go there with their experience and boom, we can do the matchmaking. It has been quite useful. Hopefully uh, where we move towards more of a tech-enabled platform will be more user-friendly where people are just going to like instantly hopefully match is it up yet can anyone access it so uh, the way it works right now the we have the like we are able to see who submits their you know their profile and if someone contacts us for let's say a particular profile looking for someone who works in public art murals we go to the database and we say, okay, there's two people that match what you're looking for. I'm going to send them an email. We shall. But gotcha. it's not as a, um, it's not a public directory where other people can automatically see yet. It's just right now, it's a very simple Excel spreadsheet. On <laughs> so it's not as refined as we wanted to. Once we have a little bit more, I would say work on the back end, it's a little bit more techy. 
I think that way would probably make it a little more interesting for folks to navigate. Yeah, that's exactly the issue I'm running through. Because like, I have a database of artists, of public yeah. artists. But it's like, I mean, it does become a question and something I've been thinking of uh, as far as like, I want to help expose these, like help expose people to these resources, but also as a business owner, how much of that access do I want to control? Because I foresee it could be like a subscription service or it could be like, you're the featured artist now, but like if you want access to the full database, you can pay subscription and free for anybody to like apply, obviously, to be on it. Okay. But on the flips, why not just have it be open? But it's not it's not so much for me, like a, I don't want people to have the information. It's just like, it's a lot of work. <laughs> so like literally upload all the file, like upload the photo and make sure everything's correct. And then I'd have to pay somebody to basically have a system that allows you to like self edit and update and you know, whoever is applying to it. So it becomes, yeah, it's totally like a tech thing where I don't necessarily want to put money into maintaining something that I'm not yeah. making money off of yet, but I also don't want to create it just to make money off of it. So like, it's like a weird thing. I, I mean, I think there's honestly, there's honestly true value on having a platform where if you're able to work out the kinks of matching people automatically, I know, for example, like TaskRabbit, right? You tell TaskRabbit, I want someone who has experience putting shelves up and that's available on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And literally within seconds, you're matched with someone that has those skills. But whoever is, I guess, the other flip side, like they have to pay a subscription to be able right. to, to be, you know, to find someone or I guess like if I were to be hiring someone, I would pay a little bit. It would be baked in whatever I pay. Right, right. Um, and if you are, let's say, one of the, the members who are putting their information, they shouldn't pay. But whoever, right. like if you're a big organization and you're looking to hire an artist, I think you can shed a couple of dollars to access the directory. Right, right. If you're yeah. able to. Not giving here business ideas, but no, I, I totally. think- No, totally. There, there's value to, to be added to your time to put, you know, a profile of someone up there. Definitely. And it seems like it's working out for you with the WokeSys directory that people come to you anyway for these questions. And now you have this thing and you can really just lift people up using because they've submitted to it, right? What advice would you give to someone who wants to pursue a, a career similar to yours? I would say that they shouldn't think about whatever their initial profession is. And I mean initial by like whatever you went to school with or whatever you went to, whatever you went to school for as something that's going to be linear and constant. I went to school for architecture and Every single summer for four years, I tried a different internship. So the first internship I, I did was working for an art gallery. And I got to work with artists who were putting art displays throughout uh, art. But I got to work with artists that were doing really cool work and artists that were also architects. The summer after that, I decided to, I wanted to do something more impact driven. So I worked for uh, another company, not an artist this time, but working with families that were looking to build their homes, you know, put equity there. And it was a lot of fun. Like there was complete different side of architecture that I didn't even know existed. And the third year is similar thing. So I, by the time I ended my, my bachelor, I had friends who said, you know, I had four solid summers working at this internship. I'm just going to go back to them when I graduate. And I went up to them. Well, I'm going to travel. I'm going to try to find, you know, inspiration somewhere else. And I'm going to make a decision which of the four different areas that I explored I want to go in. I would say the best advice I can give anyone would be to explore not only fields within, you know, sustainability or architecture or policy, but really try to meet people who do different things with your same degree or your same experience and see like what took them there. In my case, the best thing I can say is you don't have to be a subject matter expert at everything, but you have to be an expert at asking the right questions. So I think curiosity will lead you way further than a very limited set of skills. And that has been proven, you know, to work for me. I've been in different, wearing different professional hats for the last five, six years for that same reason. Just asking, asking, and asking, how can I be part of this? Do you need an extra hand in this project? Um, why is this, who is this affecting? Why is this affecting these people? Like, how can we? And it was just a constant of asking questions until the people were just like, okay, let me just give a role in this because you seem to be really interested. So yeah, again, <laughs> don't be a subject matter everything. We don't need more of them. Just be very curious and open-minded. That's great advice. Do you have a failure that you learned from that you want to share? I have many failures, but <laughs> I would say I recently took a test, a personality test that it's one of those, you know, like, are you a person who likes teams or you're more independent or you're more dominant or whatever. And it made me realize that 
within my uh, specific profiles, there's a lot of challenges, but also pros and cons. Let's put it limitations and advantages. I was thinking a lot about that. I'm like, okay, so I guess I'm this type of person. I had this kind of pet peeve, but it also made me realize that there's a different set of groups and I will call them the East who I just, it was immediate. I clicked and I said, these are the kind of people I don't work well with. And the reason I probably didn't work well with is because I didn't understand what their leadership or their work style was. Maybe I didn't make the effort to do it before uh, to really understand that. So because we didn't work or mesh together, I immediately thought this is not a relationship that I can really take further. So the biggest failure would have been not understanding different leadership styles and recognizing that we all react to different things different ways. We all react to conflict different way, differently. And that we also need as different personality, different kinds of affirmation or validation. So I think if I were to, you know, retake that test or going back to your previous question of what advice do you have? I will also add there that you should be able to, once you're working in a new environment or even with your partners and friends, try to understand what their leadership style is. Try to see how yours and hers or yours and his mesh. What are the limitations? And try to foresee what could be the common confrontations you might have before even having them. Because you have a good understanding of what your challenges are and what their challenges currently are. That's a very general one. But trust me, it, when I understood that, you know, like these are the challenges that I have and these are the challenges X, Y people have. It, it really made a difference for me. It's like, oh, this is why, this is why that didn't work. That conversation went the wrong way or et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. That's great advice too for even um, people who do contract work or artists who work with different types of clients. It's hard to know how someone's going to react to something, but if you have a sense of what their le- leadership style might be, you can anticipate what issues might come up and then be more prepared. You might not be able to avoid them, but at least Correct. like I have clients sometimes where I'm like, okay, I know how they're going to act about certain things so I can just like navigate that without being shocked every time <laughs> i know you become so sort of like a was that another synonym for medium someone that can predict certain things you know mm-hmm. like oh, wow you're in my head already even before i thought of that yeah <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by jpg legal file your trademark application with an experienced trademark attorney they have flat fee services so there are no surprises you have no excuse not to register your trademark Just go to jpglegal.com. Full disclosure, JPG Legal is run by my husband. When we first met, he had a solo practice and now he has five employees. Everyone's safely working from home right now, so I miss seeing them in person. If you need a trademark, go to jpglegal.com. Is there anything you've read or listened to that's inspired you recently? Yeah, I recently just, I just finished actually this morning, uh, a book by Tara Westover, book Educated. You know, I I was reflecting on this the the other day, not because her upbringing and my upbringing were very different. She, you know, grew up in Idaho in a Mormon family, like very conservative and very limited of opinions and things like that. But, you know, she eventually gets out of her way to earn an education and travels abroad and becomes this whole different person than what she expected to be. Mm-hmm. So I reflected a little bit about my own upbringing. I grew up in Dominican Republic. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but I was in Dominican Republic until I was shy of 20. So I came here as an adult and a lot of what I consider myself, like my core memories now and core center of like who I am as a person, what my beliefs are and my values and things like that. I can honestly say that they probably have been defined the last 10 years. A lot of it having to do with being exposed to different opinions than my own and different cultural values. And it's just something very rich in being in a place like New York City where everyone is almost like different than you. Everyone has a different experience than you. And it adds so much more to like your own critical thinking and how you see the world and how you experience and how you navigate that I felt, you know, back in, in where I grew up, I love my country. I love my city and my people. I'm not saying it in a negative way at all, but I had very limited and very formed opinions about a lot of things that I didn't really know about just because I would see it on TV or would read it on books, but it wasn't actually until I was here that I was like, oh, wow, this is completely different from what 
I thought this was. This is a complete different culture and this is so interesting. And it just, it was always a moment of, I can say of like unconditioned behavior that you have to go through in New York City. Uh, so that book reminded me a lot of that. Again, not, you know, not parallel stories, but the art of finding yourself through not being your, like, let's say like dedicated to who you were at the beginning of your life to being open to completely evolving throughout the rest of your, you know, 20s and 30s and whatever years come. That's a great book suggestion. I haven't read it yet, but we'll link to it in the show notes. Is there anything else? I would say to your members who are listening and to your artists, like sign up for Wuxus, sign up for the newsletter, try to outline everything from job opportunities to funding, try to keep it open to not only, you know, nerds, architects and stuff like that, engineers, we want to have the creatives out there. If you have an interest in sustainability, you're more than welcome into our Wuxus family. And yeah, come in. Those are open. Awesome. Yeah, I am signed up for Wokesis and it's been a great resource for me. It's inspiring because you get to see things that you could actually apply for or, you know, particularly if you work in sustainability, but also it, it does cover a bunch of different things that relate to it. Also knowing like how much is going on, like it's, it's really <laughs> cool. There's just, you both do a really good job of finding opportunities and finding the beat of sustainability. It's nice to just see that people are doing the work and people like me or people who look like me are doing the work. And that makes me like able to sleep better at night. It's like, <laughs> you don't have to do everything, right? Like you can- right. You can help lift each other up because the people are going to continue to do the work. And I think particularly at this moment in time where for me, it's easy to get kind of caught in a, a spiral of like all the bad things that are happening or the people who don't get it or the people who seem to still not get it. It's really inspiring to see your newsletter of no, like, we get it, we're doing it. And like, we're just going to keep pushing people forward who, who are doing the work. Thank you for all the work you do with it. <laughs> It's a lot, but it's definitely very rewarding work. So I'm happy to amplify your voice and any other voice of women of color. That's what we're here for. Awesome. Where can our listeners connect with you online? Sure. So we have a couple of different outlets. We have Instagram, which is uh, WOC2-NCS. Uh, we have Twitter with the same handle. We have LinkedIn. We have a LinkedIn group that's really active. That's oh, awesome. where we go for job opportunities. So we're always posting, if not daily, every other day about anything from energy to policy to creative. We have a website. So everything works is related from events, way to connect, uh, medium published uh, publications. You can find it there. The last thing I would say, email womenofcolor.cs and Gmail. Yeah. Well, we'll link to everything in the show notes. And I... Again, want everyone to sign up for your newsletter and find you, connect with you online. Also, urbanonsite.com, so you can read Jordy's blog posts. And yeah, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Well, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll talk to you soon. You too. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of First Coat. If you like this podcast, please leave a review. Make sure to subscribe to the First Coat podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at First Coat Podcast or at Distill Creative. First Coat is a production of my company, Distill Creative. Check us out at distillcreative.com.